0: Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Amanda Reeves. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Adam Kahane. Adam is a director of Rios Partners and a leading organizer, designer, and facilitator of processes through which business, government and civil society leaders can move forward together on their most important and intractable issues. During the early 1990s, Adam was the head of social, political, economic and technological scenarios for Royal Dutch Shell in London. He facilitated the Montfleur Scenario Project, in which a diverse group of South African leaders worked together to contribute to their country's transition to democracy. Since then, Adam has worked in more than 50 countries and in every part of the world, with executives, politicians, generals, guerrillas, civil servants, trade unionists, community activists, United Nations officials, clergy, and artists. Welcome to Future Part, Adam.
1: Thank you, Amanda.
0: It's such a treat to have you here. I'd like to start with the story of Adam Kahane. How did you find your way into the futures and foresight community?
1: So I've got into this work quite by accident or by destiny or whatever you'd call it. The way I got in has had a big impact on how I've done the work or how I've evolved doing the work over now quite a long time. I'm originally from Montreal. I went to McGill University here. I studied physics. It was a pure physics program, so actually only physics and math courses for my whole university career. And I recall that the exams were open book. In other words, you could bring as many notes as you wanted. And I did very well because there was only one right answer to every question. So this idea that even very complicated problems have one right answer and smart people could figure out the answer and then inform everybody else what the answer was and what they need to do about it.
0: There was a way to be right.
1: There was a way to be right. And and anyhow, that fit with my know-it-all personality and (laughs) <laughs> and my competitiveness and smartness or glibness or whatever you'd call it. Mm-hmm. At the end of my undergraduate studies, I volunteered as a student assisted at a conference called the Pugwash Conference, mm-hmm. which is an organization that's been around since... I think the late nineteen forties won the Nobel Peace Prize one year. It was founded by physicists and other scientists to work initially on nuclear weapons or the danger of nuclear war. And I really had the feeling going to that conference, as I say, as an assistant running the photocopy machine, that I was really <laughs> had the chance now to apply my brilliance to literally the biggest, most serious problems on earth. That was very much the atmosphere. Mm, sure. When I was there, I heard a speech by somebody, I think it was a woman from India, talking about the problem of energy and environment and energy supply and global warming. And I thought this really sounded interesting. And so I ended up doing my graduate studies at the University of California at Berkeley in energy economics and energy policy. And still very much in this line that These were complex problems, but smart people could figure out or actually calculate the answers, and then we'd be done. Simple. Simple, but not easy. I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect. The reason I explain it this way is because the core of how I now approach futures work was very much in contrast to that. Anyway, I graduated from this program, wanted to work in energy policy, got a job at the local electric and gas utility in San Francisco. Civic Gas and Electric, and a few years later was hired into the head office of Shell, the oil company. They were looking for somebody who knew about electricity and gas markets, which were just starting to be deregulated or transformed. And so I joined Shell as an expert in electricity and gas, electricity and gas futures, what was happening, what could happen. What was so thrilling, well, there were many thrilling things about joining Shell. It's a very amazing organization, huge and smart and powerful, fun place to go as somebody in their late 20s. I joined the scenario planning department, which was at its height of its prominence then. And that, as you know, is a very important school of futures work, which starts with the premise that Shell cannot predict the future, cannot control the future. So what it needs to do is think about multiple possible futures in order to survive and thrive no matter what happens. And that work had been going on in Shell since nineteen seventy two, a department founded by Pierre Vac and Ted Newland and Napier Collins. It very much was a sense of there being a yeah, a lineage. I knew the names and I met most of the people who'd been the head of that department, and it was thrilling. The assignment essentially was go anywhere in the world, talk to anybody you need to, try to figure out what's going on. So it was a really <laughs> A really fun job. And I learned futures work or scenario work there. And my teacher, my, well, I had two teachers, uh, Jed Davis, who later went on to run scenarios for the World Economic Forum and the World Energy Council, and Case van der Heiden, who headed the department and wrote when I still think of as the most important textbook on scenario planning called Scenarios, The Art of Strategic Conversation. And I spent five years there, eventually, after a little while moving out of electricity and gas to larger energy questions, and then eventually took the job you mentioned in the introduction as head of all of the non-energy scenario work, the political, economic, social, environmental, technological work. And this was a a wonderful experience, very luxurious in, in certain ways. Well established department had the ear of the company's leaders and access to thinkers and actors all over the world with this job of every few years making a new set of scenarios about what could happen. The planners or the futurists in Shell, at least at the time, our job was not to make plans but to facilitate or help the community of Shell executives think about what was happening and what could happen and what they needed to do about it. In other words, to help them make plans rather than to do it ourselves. So that was my introduction also to the world of facilitation, where your job isn't to be the one who knows the answer, but to help other people figure it out. This then keyed me up, as it were, for the climax of the story, if you will, which is during the time I was at Shell in 1991, there was a group of academics in South Africa at the University of the Western Cape, which was a historically black university, sympathetic to the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's party, which had only one year before been legalized. And they were interested in using the shell scenario method to think about the transition from apartheid to democracy. Their scenario planning was and is very well known in South Africa, probably more used in South Africa than any other country I can think of, except maybe Singapore. And there had been two corporate-sponsored scenario exercises, one by Anglo-American, one by Old Mutual. And these academics from this left-wing university wanted to do something that was originally called an alternative scenario planning exercise at the left. It later became known as the Montfleur Scenario Exercise after the name of the little conference center where we met in the wine country outside Cape Town in South Africa. I had been to South Africa once to visit the local Shell company, and I had met some of these people at the university. And so when they had the idea of doing this scenario exercise, they asked Shell whether I could come to South Africa to facilitate these meetings. And this was in September 1991. In preparation for that, as they were organizing the project, one of my colleagues at Shell, a man named Vince Cable, who later went on to be a politician and cabinet minister in the UK government, gave me a piece of advice that was consistent with how we did things in Shell, which is he said, I should tell them to invite onto the scenario team some awkward sods. (laughs) British expression, I don't even know if anybody in Canada would know what it means. But anyway, people who think differently. And so the organizer of the Montfleur exercise, Peter Leroux and Vincent Mapai of the University of the Western Cape, did something that nobody had ever done before. It was really an inventive insight that the scenario work would be done not by them and their friends at the university or even them and their friends in the ANC. They would invite leaders from across the system as a whole. And what that meant in South Africa of 1991 is black and white opposition and establishment, left and right, Mm -hmm. men and women, politicians, business people, academics, trade unionists, community activists. So when I arrived at the Montfleur Conference Center in September 1991 to facilitate the first workshop of the Montfleur scenario exercise, I was doing something that I had never done before, never even heard of before what we would now call a multi-stakeholder dialogue, or more specifically, a multi-stakeholder scenario planning exercise.
0: What was it like walking into that?
1: Well, it was a thrilling experience. I mean, I've thought about it many times, I've written about it many times, but it was partly the moment in history. Some people don't know anything about that context, but nobody at the time thought that South Africa would be able to find a way out of its white supremacist system, its apartheid system, peacefully. People were very pessimistic. The ANC had been banned or had been illegal, and Nelson Mandela had been in prison for decades and had just been released. Negotiations were starting, but they were really on and off, and there would be negotiations, and then things would break down, and there would be assassinations or riots or massacres. So it wasn't that people were confident everything would work out. But I think everybody knew we've got a chance here. Things are possible now, pay attention. And so when Leroux and Mapai invited people to come to this set of workshops to think about what's possible, to think about possible futures, they accepted with great interest and enthusiasm. There was another reason for this. The word apartheid in the Afrikaans language just means apartness. But what it involved is that different races and groups were rigidly separated. They were allowed to do different jobs. They weren't allowed to marry each other. They had to live in different neighborhoods. In some cases, they were so-called citizens of so-called homelands. So this idea that you could bring everybody together at a little hotel for three days at a time where there would be wine donated by the local winery Because amongst many rules of apartheid, people of different race groups were not allowed to consume alcohol together. Anyway, everything about this was an extraordinary experience. And so for me, pretty young and green know-it-all from Canada and from the U.K., I walked into this just amazing experience. Amazing partly because I found people very open and curious and warm and thoughtful and relaxed. Play volleyball at lunch. People would go for walks together on the mountain. In every respect, it blew the hinges off my life. Professionally, this idea that people from different parts of a system could be work together, even though they didn't necessarily agree with or like or trust each other, to change what was happening, mm. uh, was just the most amazing thing I'd ever come across. I didn't never heard of it, didn't know it was possible. I was seeing it with my own eyes. And all of this in the context of a epochal change, historical change in South Africa, this situation that seemed hopeless, insoluble, that had gone on for decades, if not centuries. So I became very interested in this way of working. I became very interested in this place, this situation. I also became very interested in the woman who was the organizer of the project, (laughs) Dorothy Busack. And so by the end of the project, I went back and forth from London to Cape town four times to facilitate these workshops, do the scenarios. Mm -hmm. By the end of the project, I had resigned from Shell and moved from London to Cape town and married the project organizer. That was really the hinge moment, Mm. which gave me a completely different idea about not only what it was like to do futures work, but what it was like to participate in the unfolding of history and what role I could play in that. It was everything. And to go back to the way I started the story, Mm -hmm. that although me being clever and quick and smart was certainly helpful in certain respects... Essentially, my job wasn't to figure it out for other people, wasn't to come up with the right answer, but to facilitate, to help other people figure out what they needed to do.
0: I think that's part of where that mythology around the Montfleur scenario work comes from. There's this sense of potential, but no clear path through. And there's a tangible impact of the work that happened from this, that it is this history making moment. It's a beautiful example of where doing this work and holding the space and bringing different parts of a system together can actually have a significant impact in how things unfold that might not have been possible without it.
1: Well, I think that's true in a couple of respects. I mean, I would never want to be accused of exaggerating the importance of Montfleur. Mm -hmm. It did make a contribution, I think, in a very specific area in the economic thinking of the Mandela government, which came to power in 94, that the attention of people in the ANC and of people working on South Africa in general was mostly on constitutional and political and military matters. And This team said, wait a second here, there's another crucial element to a successful transition which is the economic policy of the new government. And the Montfleur team included many of the leading economists of the ANC and of the left, and therefore had a big impact on economic thinking in the left. And head and deputy head of the ANC's economics department, Trevor Manuel and Titum Boweni, were both members of the Montfleur team, and both went on to be in the cabinet for decades. So the Montfleur project did have an influence. It wasn't responsible for the transformation in South Africa, but it it did have an influence in certain ways. There's another way of thinking about the influence, which is the influence of that process on the futures field or on the foresight field. In that sense, Montfleur was not unusual. There were many, many such groups at the time, not scenario groups, but groups of diverse stakeholders meeting To talk about what's going on and what should we do about it. The generic name was forums, and there were many forums, official forums, unofficial forums, forums on transportation, on energy, on healthcare, on education. And in that sense, Montfleur was just one of a hundred forums that met that same weekend in different places. In a way, it was the larger South African context that gave this gift to the futures field as much as the futures field gave this gift to what was happening in South Africa. Now, There's another way to put it, which I think is important. You asked me what it was like to walk into that conference center and to facilitate those workshops, I noticed from the very beginning that something was different. And in a way, I couldn't figure out what it was because the actual steps we were using to do our scenario work were exactly the same as the steps we'd used at Shell. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I didn't know anything else, so I exactly replicated the process and the analytical and conversational and workshop agenda steps that we'd used at Shell. In fact, When I look at my notebook from that time, I wouldn't even say that I've changed very substantially since then. I mean, there's been hundreds of little changes, but the basic method was not unusual. It would fit with most futures methodologies. And yet, there was something completely different. The energy in the room was completely different. I realized afterwards, the reason the energy was different was something very basic, which is that at Shell and in much other futures work, We tell stories about the future or tell stories about multiple futures in order to adapt to a future we cannot predict and cannot control. But that's not what the South Africans were doing. They were not trying to adapt. (laughs) They had not come to the Montflair Conference Center just to see, I wonder what might happen so that I can get along as best I can and make good moves and protect my party or my business or my organization. There was a bit of that, but that wasn't the main thing that was going on. The main thing that was going on is these were all people who, in one way or another, had been working for decades to try to make South Africa a better place, whether they had done that in politics and in the underground movement or in exile or in prison or within establishment institutions. These were all people who wanted to create a better future. So the methodology was the same. The scenario methodology was exactly the same, but the purpose was different. The purpose wasn't to adapt to the future, but to influence or transform the future. And there's nothing more important than purpose. There's, yeah. <laughs> the thing that's more fundamental than methodology is purpose. Why are you doing it? And so that's why when I eventually wrote a book about this methodology, mm-hmm. when you write a book, eventually your editor says, look, you, if you're writing a book about a methodology, you better give it a name. <laughs> and so the name we gave it was transformative scenario planning. Mm. Transformative scenario planning is fundamentally different from adaptive scenario planning. And that's, I think, the big contribution of Montfleur. So in order to do transformative scenario planning, it's not that the methodology has to change or just that a different purpose has to be announced. It requires different participants. If you're just trying to study the future or write about the future or tell people about the future, then that can be done with researchers or academics or consultants or in the case of Shell, staff members. The other part of what Montfleur taught us is that if you're trying to influence the future, then the best way to do that is to involve in the scenario work the actors or players or stakeholders or leaders themselves. That's quite a different kettle of fish. If you're doing scenario work with actors from across the system, it really can't be a top-down process. Mm. By definition, actors from across a social system don't all report to the same person, can't be told what to do. <laughs> and so, this idea of scenario planning being not an expert controlled process, but a, a multi actor facilitated process is the essence of transformative scenario planning and is the essence of what we discovered at Montfleur. And that's why I ended up doing this work and have done what I now call transformative scenario planning pretty well all day, every day for 30 years in tens of contexts all around the world. But that was the discovery at Montfleur. There is another important feature of doing scenario work or futures work with a team of actors from across the system you're trying to understand. In Shell, when we wanted to try to understand what was going on or understand the complexity of the system or understand how different actors viewed things, we had to read books or do interviews or hire researchers. But at Montfleur, if you wanted to understand how did some other group understand or interpret or was dealing with the current situation. You just had to turn your chair and talk to the person next to you. All of these aspects are ways of saying that on the surface, it looks the same. (laughs) The methodology is the same. The steps about driving forces and certainties and uncertainties and different possible futures are the same. But the essence of what you're really doing is completely different. What you're really doing is helping actors who together have the capacity to shift or nudge or transform a system meet and talk and act together to be able to do so. And I think that's a much bigger opportunity for futures work than the way the field is normally thought of.
0: So Adam, question two, I want to know more about the essence of this approach. Can you unpack that a bit?
1: Yeah. I got into this way of working through scenario planning, through futures work from an analytical background, but I don't really think this is much about futures work at all. I don't think that's the important thing here. I have continued to do scenario work and my colleagues in Rios and I have done this in hundreds of contexts, literally in every part of the world. But the scenarios or the futures work is the pretense or the, the way in, One of the projects I was involved in, which had a big influence on me, was in 1998 to 2000 in Guatemala after the signing of the peace accords that ended a a genocidal civil war. The process was similar to Montfleur. It involved a diverse group of actors from across the system, and not just uh, government and business and civil society people, but also a large number of indigenous people, which gave the work uh, a very different flavor because uh, indigenous people in Guatemala have a different way of thinking about past, present, and future than I did. So it was an interesting process. One of the people who was involved was a Jesuit professor, a university leader named Gonzalo de Villa. He was, by academic training, an anthropologist. And he said something very interesting to me later when we were talking about what was the significance of that project. The story he told me was very well known in anthropology. It's the story of an anthropologist named Malinowski, I think from the 1950s, whose famous work was to study the behavior of the inhabitants of certain Pacific islands far away from each other, who were observed to make very long and dangerous sea voyages from one island to another in order, apparently, to trade seashells. And Malinowski's big question was, well, what's the point? Why would people do this? And his famous answer was that it wasn't about the seashells. The seashells were the pretense, were the excuse to do much more important things, which was to form alliances among these uh, the inhabitants of these different islands. And Gonzalo de Villa said to me, the scenarios are our seashells. Mm. They were a pretense or an excuse to do what we really need to do. And in the Guatemalan case, what really needed to be done was to find a way to heal and to go beyond the terrible wounds of this genocidal civil war and to begin to work together.
0: To pick up on that theme of apartheid to start to integrate again.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. What was really going on was the opportunity to come together across deep differences. Now, I'm telling you this story to say that I think the scenarios are the means to an end. They aren't the end. The end, as I see it, is... Uh, How can we work together across our differences in order to deal with the issues, the complex and confusing and conflictual issues that we have in front of us within an organization or in a community or in a society? This is where my attention has gone. What is really involved in helping people do that, helping people collaborate across difference, helping people collaborate even with people they don't agree with or like or trust, not because they necessarily want to collaborate, but because and this is very important, because they can't make progress otherwise. I've thought a lot about collaboration. I've written a book called Collaborating with the Enemy. And for me, the crucial thing about collaboration is for some people, it may be their first choice. For some people, it may be their last choice. But it's just one choice among many. And you collaborate when you think it's the best or maybe even the only way to make progress. And you work with people who are different from you, people who you may even see as those others or even my enemies because you need to in order to get where you're trying to go. In doing this, you asked me what's the essence of what I do as a facilitator of such collaborative cross-sectoral cross-divide problem-solving or problem-addressing activities. What I don't do is I don't get people to do things. And the reason I put it this way is when I speak about this work, 100% of the time I give talks about this work of facilitation and collaboration. Somebody will ask me a question that begins, how do you get people to <laughs> dot, dot, 100% of the time. I must admit that I also have often used that phrase. I think when facilitators are talking at the bar about the difficult day they've had, they were trying to get people to do things and, and those people wouldn't do it. And I think that's the fundamental error My attention has gone to what is the alternative to getting people to do things. And I think an alternative is needed because as a facilitator, well, I would say as a human being, our capacity to get people to do things is very limited Mm -hmm. and much more limited than we think it is. Mm -hmm. I can't get anybody to do anything. I can't get my (laughs) subordinates to do things. I can't get my kids to do things. I can't get my wife to do things. Mm -hmm. I certainly can't get people I'm facilitating to do things. So what's the alternative? I'd like to tell you two stories that give a hint about what the alternative is. I was once talking about this work with a woman in Boston who has done a lot of facilitation and peacemaking work and dialogue in situations of great conflict, and she told me the following story. She said that her husband had once been swimming in a lake. There had been a terrible accident, and he was run over by a motorboat, and the propeller of the motorboat cut a huge gash in his thigh. The wound was much too big to be sewn out. The bone wasn't broken. It was was just the flesh had been ripped horribly. And the doctor said to her, Look, I can't really do anything about this. I've cleaned the wound. You need to keep it clean, but the two sides of the wound will reach out to each other. And I just found this an amazing image. You don't have to get people to do things, you don't have to get people to come together. What you have to do is to create a clean or safe space that enabling them to come together.
0: Such a beautiful metaphor.
1: What I've been uh, working on for a long time, and what I think is the essence of what I do in my work, is uh, how can you create such a space? Now, the other story I wanted to tell you gives a more precise hint. i worked a lot in Colombia since the early 90s, since the time of the Civil War, and have done scenario work there with all the parties in the war. Not just government, business, trade union, civil society, academia, church, but also all of the illegal armed factions, both of the left and the right. I've done a lot of work in Colombia. It's a beautiful country, very interesting. And after the peace accords were signed in 2016, I started to work with a small local group that was working on implementing peace in the North Cauca Valley, which was an, an area where there had been a lot of violence and conflict between landowners and guerrillas and Afro-Colombians and indigenous Colombians. So a very complicated area. And I was involved in a project there with local leaders. A man came to the first workshop who I had met before. His name is Francisco Duru, Pacho Duru. And he had just been appointed the head of the Colombian Truth Commission. It's a very important job. He's been up to his neck in the most difficult issues. This was in 2017. And so I was very surprised that he had come to this workshop. He had a big job to do. He'd come to this distant part of the country. And I asked him, uh, why are you here, Pacho? Somebody I have a lot of respect for, a, a renowned peacemaker, again, a Jesuit priest, Mm -hmm. former head of the Jesuit order in Colombia, And he said, well, you know, he was just starting his work with the Truth Commission. It's called the Commission for Truth Reconciliation and Non-Repetition. Wonderful title. And he was interested in seeing what he could learn about how to help people work together across difference, because that was the assignment that he was just taking up. And so, anyhow, we started the workshop and it was going quite well. Usual, starting with great suspicion and doing different activities formal, informal, eating meals together, going for walks together, playing with Lego blocks, writing on flip charts, writing on post-its, the usual story. But it was going quite well. And at the end of the day, we got up to go to dinner and Pacho comes running up to me, very excited. And he says, Adam, I see what you're doing. So I said, well, Pacho, what am I doing? What do you think I'm doing? I don't know what I'm doing. What do you think I'm doing? He said, Adam, you are removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery. So... (laughs) this is a very hard sentence to understand. I had dinner with him and tried to explain it to me. Philosophically and theologically, it's a very hard concept to understand. Mm -hmm. And so I've really been working on my latest book, Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together, is really unpacking that one sentence. Mm -hmm. Because I had this sense that Pacho was telling me something very important. In Catholic theology, the mystery refers in some way to God, to the unknowable. Mystery, in this sense, is not a mystery like an Agatha Christie mystery where you figure it out at the end. It's this unknowable aspect of the world. But what was interesting to me was not what the mystery was, because pretty quickly figured out I didn't have any idea what that was about. But what's really interesting to me is what did he mean by removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery? And this was the clue to me of what the alternative is to getting getting people to do things. The alternative, I think, is helping them remove the obstacles to the expression of the highest potential of the situation they're in. That's really what I've been trying to unpack. And you referred to a book I wrote previously called Power and Love, A Theory and Practice of Social Change. And I think that that's two-thirds of the story my understanding of what are you doing when you're removing the obstacles expression of the mystery is you're removing the obstacles to the expression of three fundamental human drives that are always there that are always in tension, and that all three have to be activated. The first of those is love. And by love, I'm using a very specific definition from a man named Paul Tillich, The Drive to Unite the Separated. That's what I experienced at Montfleur as the excitement at coming together across the apartheid divisions. And that's what the woman in Boston was pointing me to when she told me the story about the two sides of the wound want to come together. One of the drives, which was the one that got my attention first because it was so dramatic in South Africa and Colombia and elsewhere, is this drive to connect, to reconnect that which has become or which appears fragmented. That's the first drive, which I call love. It's a big word, but I think it works well for this situation. But as you know from the book Power on Love, love is only half the story. That book was based on a sentence from Martin Luther King Jr. where he said, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Mm -hmm. So if you focus just on connecting and being one without paying attention to power, the result is sentimental and anemic, at best, if not a cynical reproduction of the status quo. And so the second drive is power, which Tillich defines as the drive of everything living to realize itself. Now, we understand that power without love is reckless and abusive. If everybody's just trying to realize themselves, get what they want, meet their agenda, do their job, fulfill their interests, without any attention to connecting connections to other. The result is that you steamroll other people. Well, the result is reckless and abusive at best and genocidal at worst. The idea I played with in the book Power and Love is that as a facilitator, you need yourself to employ both power and love and you need to help the actors employ both power and love. To complete the story, there's a third element, which is what I've written about in this new book without this third element, nothing really moves or nothing really moves forward. And the third element is justice, Mm. equity, where justice here means the form or direction that prevents the power of some from obliterating the power of others. If you're just talking about power and love, you can end up with, okay, I'll get a little of what I want. You get a little of what you want. We'll be whole. Mm -hmm. We'll move forward. sort of a negotiation. The justice element brings in this idea that, no, a a solution which prevents some people from being, from living, from growing, can't work. The essence of facilitation, if you want to put it in ordinary terms, is to remove the obstacles to contribution, which is power, connection, which is love, and equity, which is justice. And I use the words power, love, and justice because I think it hints at the deeper thing that's going on here. When I talk about the essence of what I discovered at Montfleur, for which scenarios our futures work are merely the shells, they're the excuse to moving forward together. And those three words represent move is the exercising of power. Literally, nothing happens without power, literally. Mm -hmm. Secondly, forward, a sense of progress. That's the justice part of it and together, love. The essence of enabling collaboration, which I call facilitation, is removing the obstacles to moving forward together.
0: Can you tell me what emerging futures are capturing your attention at the moment?
1: Well, I'll answer that, but briefly, because I realized early on when I got into scenario work that I'm not much of a futurist. I don't think a lot about the future. I'm not very interested in the future. I thought email was a fad. <laughs> <laughs> so I've worked with great futurists like Pierre Vac, like Peter Schwartz and others, As I was saying earlier, I think the essence of what I do is use futures conversation as a pretext or as a doorway into what interests me more. I'm not going to say more important, but the part of it that I am interested in and where I see my own contribution, which is enabling people to move forward together. Uh, that said, uh, a few things come to mind when you ask that question. The first is, as a sort of futurist, I'm very interested in this phenomena of climate change because it's probably the topic which has been the subject of more futures work and more scenario work than anything else ever. Sure. I was reading stories or reports about possible futures for climate change when I was at Berkeley 35 years ago. Climate change is daunting for many well-known reasons, but for the futures community, I think it's a very big challenge Mm -hmm. because it says, why is it that in spite of hundreds of very well-resourced futures exercises at every level from local to global, including tens of reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Mm -hmm. why is it? That in spite of all of this very high-profile futures work, uh, we are in this mess that we're in. I don't have any special insight into the answer to that question. That's a shame. <laughs> but I think it's a question that <laughs> that people interested in futures work or scenarios work need to think about. I suppose one part of that answer is this idea that what matters is rationality and the good of the whole, Mm -hmm. which is connected to, in my taxonomy to love, is only part of the story. If you are not also thinking about power and interests and whose interests are involved in fossil fuels or replacing fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. and if you aren't also paying attention to justice, whose life is being extinguished by these power phenomena, then you won't understand anything. I'm mentioning climate change for the same reason everybody mentions climate change, but also because I think it poses rude questions for futurists about what the hell do we think we're doing? And why do we think that just making more future studies is going to be of any help at all?
0: Do you think there's something in it around the framing and the way that this work engages? Do you think there's room for more of a transformative approach?
1: Well, in the science of climate change, we have three options. We can mitigate, which is reduce CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions to reduce climate change, to reduce global warming and climate change. That's option number one. Mm -hmm. Option number two is adapt. We can build higher dikes and move inland and find a way to deal with changed agricultural and weather patterns, or we can suffer. That's it. There's only three options, mitigate, adapt, or suffer. But this is nothing new. The transformative aspect of climate change futures work has been there forever. How can we together reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to mitigate climate change and reduce the need for adaptation and suffering? So that's not new. But in my taxonomy, to only talk about we, to refuse to talk about anything other than we, the whole, what's best for the whole, is to fall into exactly what Martin Luther King said when he said, love without power is sentimental and anemic. It produces sentimental anemic outcomes. Which is what we're seeing now. Insufficient outcomes. I believe, at least in the abstract, that what's required is to think not just about love, but also about power and justice. And for future's work and the facilitation of future's work, to embrace that three-part imperative, which, by the way, there is no neat middle ground or balance or synthesis of power, love, and justice. These are three drives that are in permanent tension. And what's required is to move back and forth among the three, not find some relaxed place in the middle. So that's one thing that comes to mind when you ask me about what I see emerging. The other, which has come to my attention a lot, Rios does this work in all kinds of domains environment, water, energy, justice, education. But my work, my own practice has tended to focus on political situations, especially ones of high conflict. And what I notice recently working globally on security scenarios in the US on political scenarios Mm -hmm. in Haiti, Ethiopia, Myanmar, Chile, South Africa, places where there is really (laughs) extremely difficult situations is that what I call the default mode of forcing. Mm. I said to you earlier that collaboration is only one of four options. The other three options are forcing, adapting, and exiting. The reason I help people collaborate more effectively is I think that if they don't, the default will be back to forcing or authoritarian solutions this is what I want, this is what works for me, and I'm going to do it, whether you like it or not. And even if I have to ignore you or run over you mm. or kill you. And I think we're at a period in history where the forcing solution, the authoritarian solution, is gaining in currency. Mm. And this is frightening to me. Yeah. And there certainly are scenarios where that becomes the dominant mode with all of the terrible consequences that go along with that.
0: How is it that you explain what you do to someone who doesn't necessarily understand what it is that you do?
1: Well, I've had to think about that a lot as somebody who tries to write about this work and to write about it not only for professional colleagues, but for more general audiences. My publisher in Japan said to me once that he really wishes I would write a book that would be of interest to more than a hundred people. So, (laughs) which I, I took as a a worthy challenge, and so I try to explain this in ways that are more generally understandable. I say that I help people work together. I help people move forward together. I help people work together to address their most important and difficult challenges. I help them get unstuck, especially from situations where they are polarized and fragmented and stuck and blocked and unable to move forward. I say to people that oftentimes, in order to get where we're trying to go, we have to work not just with our friends and colleagues, but also with strangers and opponents, including with people we don't agree with or like or trust. And that's what I do. Help people do that.
0: made it to question five, which is the open question. As you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. I can't wait to read your new book, Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together. Can you tell me why you've written this book?
1: Well, uh, all of my books in a certain way deal with the same question, which is how can we deal with the tough Problematic situations we find ourselves in, how can we move forward together? I wrote this new book to try to give more practical guidance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The entry point is I think the world needs more and better collaboration, and therefore the world needs more and better facilitation. And here I'm redefining the word facilitation, not just to refer to some professional standing in the front of the room keeping time <laughs> or standing in that central Zoom window. Mm-hmm. I'm using the word facilitator to refer to anybody who helps people move forward together, whether that's as a team member or leader or manager or chairperson or friend or coach or consultant. I'm trying in this book to broaden and raise the practice of facilitation, broaden it to being something that anybody can do who's trying to help people move forward together and raise in the sense that I think this is, I wouldn't say the thing, but one of the things we really need in the world. Because the potential of dealing with our complex problematic situations only through forcing, only through authoritarian and unilateral means is not a prospect I'm enthusiastic about. So if we're not going to do that, we have to collaborate and if we're going to collaborate, we need facilitation. Uh, I wanted to write a book about facilitation in this general sense, not just for people who do the kind of facilitation I do of large, multi-stakeholder, future-oriented efforts, but also anybody who's trying to facilitate in their community or in their organization or in whatever work they're doing, in whatever role they're playing. What I found that I was able to do, all of my books, as you know, are based mostly reflecting on my own experience, actually mostly reflecting on my own screw-ups of one sort or another (laughs) and what I've learned from them, is that I think I have been able to say something something new and fundamental about facilitation i would sum it up with the words i saw on t-shirt in thailand it's simple but not easy yes the simple part of facilitation is it really only requires two moves what i call the vertical which is the kind of facilitation that talks about what's best for the whole how are we going to solve this problem what's the right answer what's the right path which is very useful it has enormous limitations, and the horizontal, which is the opposite, which is what's best for each individual, what are different ways forward, Mm -hmm. how are we each going to get our own house in order, et cetera. In my experience, most facilitators choose either the vertical or the horizontal, It's two schools of thought, two literatures, and I think the kind of facilitation that's required, the kind of facilitation that enables us to transform our complex problematic situations, what I call transformative facilitation, requires doing both. It's a classic polarity. You have to do both. You can't just do something in the middle. You can't choose one or the other. You've got to do vertical, then horizontal, then vertical, then horizontal. It's a little more complicated than that, but essentially, well, it's those two moves in five domains, so it's 10 moves in total. It's very simple. You just have to learn to do 10 things. The part that's not simple is you don't do them in any particular or predictable order <laughs> or rhythm. <laughs> you just have to pay attention and know which of these 10 moves do I need to make right now. That's it. Paying attention. What's going on in the situation, in the team, in myself? Which of these 10 moves do I need to move next? Is it a vertical move? Is it a horizontal? Vertical, 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 horizontal, horizontal, vertical, horizontal. Paying attention. Mm-hmm that's what's required. So that's what the book is. It offers a new language, a new grammar for facilitation, simple but not easy, which enables us to not to get people to do things, but to remove the obstacles to moving forward together. And that's what I think we need a lot more of.
0: And on behalf of the FuturePod community, I'd like to give you a heartfelt thanks for joining me today. This has been such a pleasure to talk. I really can't wait to read the new book. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Amanda. It's been my pleasure.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, visit the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Amanda Reeves saying goodbye for now.